Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. Thanks so much for joining us for the March uh, podcast. Our topic of discussion this month is mythology and fairy tales. I'm Eden Gray, and I'm here with my co-host, Carrie Green. Hi! And we are also here with a special guest, Les Lehman. Les is the adult programming librarian here at JCPO. Hi, everyone. <laughs> We're really happy to have Les as a guest this month. Um, so tell us, what exactly do you do for the library, Les? Well, I put information out there in a different way, Eden. We have books, we have technology, we have all of these different kinds of ways of, of letting people learn, and I do it through programs. So we try to have something that's interactive, we try to have something that where you learn hands-on. So which was the most fun program that you did this past month in March? Wow, the most fun. Uh, honestly, it's probably the PIO class. I had a great time at PIO. Uh, What's PIO? It's Pilates and yoga mixed together, and it's a little bit more upbeat than yoga and a little uh, less uh, vigorous than uh Pilates and its strength and it's still music and uh, you know people all exercising together I'm, I'm a kind of an exercise fanatic so it was, it was very nice nice I'm not an exercise fanatic so you won't see me at Payo <laughs> but that sounds really like a, a good combination of cool stuff um, when is Payo Thursdays Payo is on Thursday nights and we'll continue that program through April and then maybe bring it back again in the fall we always try to have some kind of health and fitness programming very cool. So to talk a little bit on our topic of mythology and fairy tales, um, I heard that you learned a lot about St. Patrick this month for your Sprout program. Um, tell us something weird and wacky you learned about St. Patrick. Well, the first weird and wacky thing I learned about St. Patrick is, is that he really existed. Honestly, <laughs> he's so lumped in with uh, St. Patrick's Day that you almost come to think of him as just kind of a legend. And so many of the stories that we hear about him, for instance, that he chased snakes uh, out of an island that never had snakes, or that, uh, you know, he, he taught about the Trinity with a clover, and that he had a staff that when he put it down in the ground, it grew roots and became a tree. Um, all of these things, of course, are just myths about him. So it was exciting to learn that he was a real person, and not only a real person, but probably a guy that I would have liked okay. So that, that, that actually surprised me. So another thing I learned about St. Patrick was that he was not at all Irish. For anyone that uh, didn't know that, he came from what would have been uh, maybe Britain today. It was part of the Roman Empire, and his family was nominally religious. Uh, they would have been part of the kind of budding Christian faith at the time, and they basically participated in such a way that enabled them to pay less in taxes and still get some kind of guard out of the Romans or protection from um, other people that were raiders and invaders. Unfortunately, the, the power of the Roman Empire in Britain at that time was on the wane, and Patrick was indeed captured uh, by some Irish raiders and taken as a slave to Ireland. Wow, what, what time period are we talking about? We're talking about the 400s. Oh, wow. 400s uh, A.D., so very, very early on. Um, Patrick spent six years as a slave. He spent another three years 
um, trying to get home after he heard what he felt was the voice of God tell him uh, on a mountain while he was tending sheep in the middle of Ireland that it it was time to to go home. So the voice told him to walk 200 miles and he would find a ship. And indeed he did. He walked 200 miles. He found a ship. The, The ship spent another three years getting him back. And then he went through a long process of Uh, deciding that he wanted to become uh, a church official, that he wanted to return to Ireland and minister to people because he felt that it was his faith that had gotten through the loneliness of being a slave in Ireland where he didn't speak the language or know anyone or have the support of his family. So that's where the saint part comes in later on. So later on, interestingly enough, too, um, he's not actually a saint. That's another thing. He's only a saint in name. At the time, there was no canonization process. So we, um, they just started. He became a saint afterwards. Yeah, people just started calling him a saint, and it was accepted that he was a saint. Um, He's never been canonized, and uh, and indeed a lot of people that we call saints haven't been canonized because there wasn't a process for that until much later. But uh, at any rate, yeah, he decided that he wanted to go spread his faith in Ireland, and that's something that the church hadn't really made much effort to do. Remember, the the Roman Empire, they were fine with absorbing things, so if you had one religion or another, it was fine. They, they didn't really care. They really just wanted you to pay your taxes. So their, their big idea of getting, you know, something out of Ireland was mostly to convert the people so that they would be Roman citizens and good Roman citizens, which meant they followed the church at the time. Um, He had very little backing from the church when he went back, and the only thing he would have really had was a good personality, a good means to persuade people, and a lot of tolerance and maybe the ability to tell a good story and interweave the ideas of Christianity with the pagan faith of the people on the islands so that they, um, they were palatable, that they were something that the people there could swallow. And uh, yeah, that's that gives you a lot of power being able to tell a good story. Exactly, exactly. So St. <laughs> Patrick was a good storyteller. He, he earned a lot of uh, converts. He claims um, in the two letters that we have that were actually written by him, he claims that he converted thousands of people in the 30 years that he spent there. He didn't actually go there till he was 45 years old, I think, <coughs> is the estimate, or in his 40s. So he uh, he's you know, he spent till he was in his 70s. There was no martyrdom involved. He, he wasn't uh, really persecuted in any way. Um, and because he had so few people there with him, we can, we can pretty much say this for sure, because if it had just been him and no one liked him, they would have just killed him. <laughs> so uh, we, we think he made some happen. friends. And, uh, yeah. and he, in, within 200 years of his death, um, the whole of Ireland was fairly Christian, although Ireland's Christianity to this day and their Catholicism is still heavily woven with stories and legends and fairy tales because it's just part of who, right. who they are. Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, There's some history and culture. So can you tell everyone why you were researching St. Patrick? <laughs> that is kind of a, a good question, isn't it? Um, For six months out of the year, we have a little program called Sprout, and the idea behind the program is that there's so much information out there in the world that um, we like to throw out an informational topic that that may have something to do with that particular month or may just be of interest to people. I do a research on it, and then we create a packet, 
And if you do the little activities on the front of the packet, you get entered to win some fun prizes. We also have a program uh, that goes back and reiterates the information in the packet or presents it in a new way so that you can come in and interact. We had a fun virtual field trip with the Ohio History Center about St. Patrick. So people came in and, and did that. We, we made some shamrock boutonnieres. And it, it was all, all good fun for St. Patrick's Day this month. Yeah, sounds great. And what's up next for Sprout? Next month, we're going to be talking about solar energy. And we'll have the Kentucky Solar Energy Society here to uh, el- elaborate and enlighten us about uh, light. That sounds awesome, man. Just in time for Earth Day. So thank you so much for sharing, Les. Um, we we're really happy to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Les. Thanks for having me. Now we're going to get into the book recommendation section of the podcast, um, starting with Carrie. Then stay tuned for patron recommendations at the end of the podcast. Okay, so uh, as some of you may know, Neil Gaiman has a new book out, Norse Mythology, which retells Norse myths and would be the perfect book to talk about for this month's theme. I'm very excited about that book. I just saw it at Joseph Beth the other day because I forgot that it had come out and I really want to read it. Yeah, I do too. Unfortunately, it's checked out right now, oh, so, no. <laughs> so I didn't get to read it. Um, but I thought since you know, new books are often popular and you maybe have to wait a little bit to get one, um, that maybe it would be a good idea to talk about another Neil Gaiman book that um, also deals with myth and fairy tales, and that is The Ocean at the End of the Lane. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. As the narrator says near the beginning of the book, quote, I liked myths. They weren't adult stories and they weren't children's stories. They were better than that. They just were. Adult stories never made sense, and they were so slow to start. They made me feel like there were secrets, Masonic, mythic secrets, to adulthood. Why didn't adults want to read about Narnia, about secret islands and smugglers and dangerous fairies? Unquote. Gaiman has written a book for adults who do want to read about Narnia and myths and fairies. The ocean at the end of the lane begins when the narrator, a middle-aged man in town for a funeral, is drawn to the farm near his childhood home, where three generations of Hempstock women lived. Sitting by the duck pond at the end of the lane, he remembers being seven and a series of strange events that began after a neighbor killed himself. The book is about childhood and the mysteries of adulthood. It's about making sense of life and death. It's about connecting to and understanding the world around you, both seen and unseen. The Hemstock women are ageless, and they have mysterious powers that are slowly but never completely revealed to the boy. The women not only have the power to protect the narrator from evil, they also have the power to feed him hearty, comforting foods like pancakes and porridge. Early on in the book, Letty Hemstock serves him, quote, Warm porridge from the stovetop with a lump of homemade blackberry jam, my favorite. Unquote. The narrator says, I swished it around with my spoon before I ate it, swirling it into a purple mess, and was as happy as I have ever been about anything. Unquote. 
The description reminded me of eating a bowl of porridge with berries on the Isle of Skye in Scotland last summer. It was foggy and cool, and after a week of bad hotel Scottish breakfasts, the hot cereal tasted just as the narrator describes. Perfect. What does hot... What does bad hotel Scottish breakfast <laughs> entail? Um, well, yes, good question. Um, they were very big on lots of meat at breakfast. I'm not a big meat person. Um, so it was lots of sausage, very mm-hmm. heavy. Mm-hmm. And also they're very big on baked beans, which mm-hmm. I have nothing against baked beans, but these were like baked beans straight out of the can. They weren't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they weren't like homemade on Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was ready for something different um, by the time we got that bowl of porridge. And that was perfect. Um, so I think The Ocean at the End of the Lane, it's a fast, easy read, and it's just the book for a lazy Saturday, and you should start it while eating a bowl of oats to fortify you for the journey ahead. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. The first book I want to talk about is The Wrath and the Dawn by Renee Adia. It's a young adult fantasy novel inspired by A Thousand and One Nights, um, which is a collection of Middle Eastern and Indian stories. Uh, One of the most well-known stories from that collection is the story of Scheherazade, who gives herself in marriage to a king who is known to murder a new wife every morning. But Scheherazade tells the king a story in the evening and leaves it unfinished, so that the king will spare her in order to hear the end of the story the next evening and the next and the next. And that's how she saves herself and the future wives. This book, The Wrath and the Dawn, is a retelling of that story. So in Renee Adia's debut novel, which is fantastically written for a debut, um, the land of Khorasan is ruled by a monstrous boy king named Khalid. When her heroine Shahrazad's best friend falls victim to Khalid's murderous hands one morning, The girl vows vengeance and volunteers to be his next bride, against the wishes of her friends and family. Each night, she captures the young Caliph Khalid's attention with her stories, attempting to stop the murders and save herself and her people. But as many nights passed, Shahrazad finds herself inexplicably falling in love with Khalid, who is nothing like she at all expected. Meanwhile, uh, in the the rest of the world, war is brewing between Khorasan and the surrounding countries, and Shahrazad's father and childhood friend are tied up in that conflict, and she's very worried about them. I would have to say that this novel's biggest strengths are the world that the author created and the strong characters. The world building in this fantasy novel is fantastic, and the characters have really incredible depth. I've read it twice, and I plan to reread the entire series again this year. The second book is called The Rose and the Dagger, and along with two short stories, it completes the series. It's one of my absolute favorite retellings, and I highly recommend it for fans of YA fantasy or romance, or those looking for something really magical and exotic. That sounds really good, and that says a lot if you're preparing to read it again. Yeah, yeah, I loved it so much. Um, I don't buy a lot of books, but I bought the paperback when it comes out. Um, The paperback had a different cover than the hardcover, and a lot of people didn't like that change, but I love the paperback cover. Um, so that's the one I'll try to include in our mm-hmm. blog post. It's very pretty. 
covers are so important. Yeah. Okay, so um, the next book that I wanted to talk about is actually a teen book. It's called Poisoned Apples, Poems for You, My Pretty, um, (laughs) and it's by Christine Hepperman. In her author's note, Christine Hepperman says that while men took credit for writing fairy tales, quote, the original tellers were, in all likelihood, women, and those women were sneaky. They understood that including fantastical elements in their tales, golden eggs, singing harps, talking frogs, worked to mask a deeper purpose, unquote. Hepperman works within that tradition, retelling fairy tales for a contemporary audience of teenage girls, young women, and the people who love them. The 50 poems included in Poisoned Apples explore body image, gender expectations, the beauty myth, and consumerist culture. Here, beauty becomes the beast, and little Bo Peep becomes a librarian who steals her favorite books to keep them safe. Little Red Riding Hood is retold in a poem called A Shape Magazine Fairy Tale. Quote, One day, while out walking in the woods, at a steady pace with short bursts of speed, the girl met a wolf and told him, What big smudge-free lashes you have. <laughs> I, I love this book. I've read it, and the poems are so biting. <laughs> they are. Um... They really just come right out and say what they think. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. But they're so twisted and clever. Yeah, they're really smart. And some of the poems also deal di- more directly with contemporary life. So there's a poem called Abercrombie Dressing Room. And there's another one called Photoshopped Poem, which reads in its entirety, Some say the before poem had character. This poem is much more attractive. With a healing brush tool, I took out most of the lines. I left in a few so it wouldn't look unnatural. And as you mentioned, these poems are smart, they're funny, they're brave. They made me remember my own teenage years, and I wish I'd had a truth teller like Hepperman to guide me through them. And the book also includes black and white photographs that reflect on similar themes as the poems and add a nice visual weight, and I think should particularly resonate with the intended audience. And because so many of this books and so many of the poems in this book are about body image and anorexia, it made me want to eat something really subversive. <laughs> the kind of thing that society tells girls and women they shouldn't eat. And even though I'm not a big meat person, the first thing I thought of was a big, messy, juicy hamburger. Um, So toss in some fries and a shake and don't even think about feeling ashamed or guilty. Yes, I can very much agree with that. (laughs) I like that idea. (laughs) And it could be a veggie burger if you're a vegetarian, just Mm -hmm. as long as it's really messy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, messy burgers are the best kind. Mm -hmm. Definitely. The next book I want to talk about is, of course, another young adult fantasy. Um, And this one is called Shadows on the Moon, and it's by Zoe Marriott. It's a little bit older of a young adult book, but it's still definitely one of my favorites. It's a story set in historical Japan, 
and it's a fairy tale reminiscent of Cinderella. The classical storytelling style of this novel is the most refreshing thing about it, as is the historical Japanese setting. I liked the way the novel was not only complete in its storytelling because it's only a single book. I don't have to worry about getting the second one or or waiting for the third book for the story to be finished. But the world also feels very real and concrete, um, despite there only being one book for it to be built in. I felt like when I was reading that I was really transported away to a long ago magical Japan, and I couldn't help myself from thinking about the story even after I had closed the book or finished a chapter. So Shadows on the Moon is about a girl named Suzume, who is trained in the magical art of shadow weaving, meaning that she can recreate herself in any form. Suzume is constantly on the run from her tragic childhood, and because of that, no one knows who she really is, and she struggles with that identity herself. She could be a noble girl living under the tyranny of her mother's new husband, Lord Terayama, or she could be a lowly servant trying to survive the hardship of Lord Terayama's kitchens. Or perhaps Suzume is actually the mysterious Yue, the most beautiful courtesan in the Moonlit Lands. Suzume has many identities that she uses to survive and work toward her goal, revenge. She uses her powers to steal the heart of a prince in order to exact revenge for her past and her family. And along the way, she finds out some hard truths about her past and herself. Um, I really love this one. Um, I guess because a lot of a lot of young adult fantasies are really long series or trilogies and it can just take so long to get any resolution in the story. Um, in this one with her, the, the main character is really strong and determined, um, but she has a lot of doubts and she deals with it all on her own, um, which I find interesting and yeah, sounds, I highly recommend it. It sounds like the kind of book that Christine Hepperman would recommend yes as well definitely yeah and it's very lyrically written too mm -hmm. oh and also uh fairy tales you know you kind of think of the kind of tale that you would tell over the fire or something and that sort of implies brevity i think yes yeah it, it, it's not usually something that oh you've got to come back next weekend over <laughs> over the fire you know for right like the gathering to get the rest of the story like no you want it all at once The last book I want to talk about is The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden. This is a brand new adult fantasy, um, which isn't something I usually read. And it was actually on the list that Carrie had put together of recommendations, too. Um, yes, it was a book that Kendall, our former colleague, recommended to me before she left. Um, and it's something that I've wanted to read, but I haven't actually read it yet. So I'm glad to hear that you've read it. <laughs> yeah, I just finished it a few days ago and it was amazing. Um, I listened to the audiobook, um, which I highly recommend. You guys know I love audiobooks um, and the, the voices are amazing and the accents are perfect. <laughs> um, so The Bear and the Nightingale is the first book in a trilogy, which I didn't know when starting it. I felt like the first book on its own was very complete. Um, That's good to know. I'm, I'm excited that there's a second book, but I didn't know that going into it. And mm -hmm. I felt like it was a great ending. Yeah, I don't normally read series, so I'm glad to know that I don't You don't have to have with to. this one, yeah. <laughs> so The Bear and the Nightingale is ultimately about a girl called Vasilisa. 
It's set at the edge of the Russian wilderness, um, where winter lasts most of the year and the snowdrifts grow taller than houses. Um, but Vasilisa loves her home and she loves the winter nights and she loves spending them huddled around the fire of the kitchen with her siblings. Everything goes a little wrong for Vasilisa and her family after Vasilisa's mother dies, when her father goes to Moscow and brings home a new wife to take care of his, of his children. The fiercely devout city-bred stepmother named Anna forbids her family from honoring the household spirits. And while they do what she says, Vasilisa is frightened because she senses that um, bad things are going to happen if, if they don't keep those old traditions and myths alive. And uh, as she feared, crops begin to fail, evil creatures creep out of the forest, and misfortune uh, stalks the village at every turn. And on, on many occasions, Vasilisa must step forward and defy the people that she loves and defy her family and her stepmother in order to save them. And it's, it's an ongoing theme throughout the novel that Vasilisa has to step up and be strong and stand in front of this terrifying mythological danger um, when everyone is telling her to just stay home, sit by the fire, and be a good girl. <laughs> but if she did that, then another villager would die or a children ch child would get stolen or um, they would go hungry for another month before spring. Um, and that sounds like another great example of a subversive fairy tale yes um ultimately it's it's based on the myth of the frost frost king or a uh, frost demon who um Vasilisa's old nurse tells the story of in the very beginning and i believe that it's, it's supposed to be a retelling of that in a way that the girl the girl who gets stolen by the Frost King in the grandmother's story, mm -hmm. it just kind of disappears and you don't know anything about her. Where here, the Frost King takes second stage. He's he's a step down from Vasilisa. He's a side character because she's right up front and take charge. Um, and that's really exciting. Yeah. Nothing else to say. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. It's really well written. Um, I think it might be her her debut, which is incredible. Um, I don't know how she did it, and she weaves in just incredible amounts of Russian mythology and culture and history. It's all really authentic, and um, it's I fantastic. think I read that she is a Russian scholar, so a literature scholar. Okay, she's getting some use out of those degrees. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> It doesn't feel forced, though, and it's not difficult to read. It's it's all really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't wait to read it. It reminds me of um, just hearing about a book that's based on Russian fairy tales. It reminds me of a book that I read maybe a year or two ago called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. Um, it's by Anna Anya von Bremsen. I remember that one. You recommended it at Books and Bites once. Yeah, it's... It's, although the title focuses on Soviet cooking and a lot of it does focus on sort of doing the best you can with what you have, it also takes a historical look at um, so uh, Russian cooking before the revolution um, and all of the feast foods that they used to eat anyway it kind of has both feast and famine yes in that's, it. that's very present in in this novel and the 
it's really seems like a really big part of Russian culture is Mm -hmm. preparing for the famine, but feasting as much as you can while you can. Right. Yeah, so definitely check out The Bear and the Nightingale um, as soon as you can. I bet our copy is probably checked out because it's still pretty new, but that doesn't mean you can't put a hold on it and look forward to reading that. Okay, so I'm going to do something a little different this month, and instead of recommending individual dishes or recipes with each book, I'm just going to recommend a cookbook from the teen library. Um, my favorite one that I found over there is called Mug It, <laughs> Easy and Delicious Meals for One by Pam McElroy. And it's a cookbook. It's tiny. Um, it's a little bit taller than a big coffee mug, and it's about making things in mugs. Uh, every single recipe is you put a bunch of stuff in the mug, you microwave it, you put more stuff in the mug, you microwave it some more, and then you have a meal or a dessert. <laughs> it's really cool. That sounds perfect. Um, so one of them is mac and cheese. <laughs> it's how to make homemade macaroni and cheese in a mug. <laughs> it's super easy. You can also make minestrone soup in a mug. <laughs> and the one that I'm most looking forward to making because I love desserts is berry crisp, which you make with instant oats, sugar, flour, nutmeg, butter, milk, all the stuff you need to make, make a pie or something. And you throw it in with some fresh berries and microwave it for like two or three minutes put on some whipped cream and you're good to go hey that sounds like the perfect recipe for the ocean at the end of the lane yeah yeah you can just make this yourself um at home you don't need to bake anything and you don't need to dirty any mixing bowls and yes so instead just mug it (laughs) as the book says it's very clever that's my bites recommendation for this month Today for our patron recommendations, we have the Mists of Avalon series by Marion Zimmer Bradley. This is an epic series that is a, a literary classic. It's the magical legend of King Arthur, vividly retold through the eyes and lives of the women who wielded power from behind the throne. It's a spellbinding novel and an extraordinary literary achievement. Um, it's said that it, it will stay with you for a long time to come, and again, our Uh, book club attendees had all remembered reading the series long ago and really loved it. It is the the first book in quite a long series. The first one is called The Mists of Avalon. The second one is The Forest House and so on. There are seven books in the series, first published in 1982 and the seventh one was published in 2009. So if you're looking for a fantastic mythological fantasy series, uh, check out Marion Zimmer Bradley's Avalon series. You can find them at the library. So you can join us at a meeting of the Books and Bites program the last Wednesday of every month at 10.30 a.m. in the Davis Conference Room. Next month in April, we'll be discussing our favorite poetry books and books and recipes related to Earth Day. So stay tuned for that on the next Books and Bites podcast. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his forthcoming album, In Close Quarters with the Enemy. Find more from Scott at palisades.bandcamp.com. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We're recording in the Jessamine County Public Library's recording studio, which you can find more about on our website, www.jesspublib.org.